Well, Acts 23. Acts, the 23rd chapter. Last time we saw Paul had gone into Jerusalem, as he was intent to do. And he went through the purification process, and they saw him as he was finishing up. They all got mad, came in and rushed him, dragged him out into the streets, or beating him up. And the, the Roman commander came in that mad crowd and pulled him out and tried to hear what was going on. And Paul asked for some time to address the crowd, which he was granted. And in doing so, he got them very irate when they heard the word Gentile. And no, nothing more would be heard by Paul. So he brought the Sanhedrin there before him. And at that time, we had the acting, so-called acting high priest Ananias, along with some of the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And as Paul was going through, he saw the two different groups and decided to put them against each other, which he did. And they got into an argument. And even the Pharisees, who were so adamant to kill Paul, decided to be on his side because they agreed on the resurrection. It is amazing how people will do that. But that's what they did. And so uh, they weren't getting anywhere with this. So he's uh, back in prison. We pick up some things here in uh, verse 11. But the following night, the Lord stood by him, Paul, and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified of me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. Now, as we've talked about, there's been a lot of debate whether Paul missed it going to Jerusalem, whether he shouldn't have been there to begin with, whether God was warning him about going and so forth. But it does say right here, be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem. Who did he testify to? He didn't get very far with the crowd, did he? So who's he testified to? The leaders. And the commander of the Roman army and the centurion that was there. <laughs> These are the ones he's testified to so far. He'll, he'll, he'll eventually get to Felix and, on this one and, and Festus and some other ones. But God doesn't make mistakes. For as you have testified for me in Jerusalem. Now most people who cite Paul as being in error for going cite him as being unfruitful in what he did in Jerusalem as evidence. But what did God say? For as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. So apparently, God wanted whatever happened in Jerusalem to also go on at Rome. In light of that, is Paul's mission a failure? I think it would be hard-pressed to say that it was a failure. Simply because... God says, what you did there in Jerusalem, I want you to do also in Rome. Mm -hmm. So I don't know that we can say that he missed it. And, and just uh, by using this as, as evidence. And uh, again, as I mentioned last time, my, my personal opinion on this is Paul, Paul was always willing to go wherever God said. I think this one, Paul uh, was uh, petitioning God and God says, look, Paul, you've gone wherever I've asked you to go. If you want to go there, go ahead. If, if, yeah, I think if anything, it was probably something along those lines. But um, though he didn't get very far with the crowd, he has testified before James. And James keeps moving more and more over <laughs> to the side of the law. And Paul certainly could be in there. Maybe he's being an influence to try and bring him back. Uh, the people there are pretty much gone, it seems. But he is working on the 
the, the others that are there. So, as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. Now, he keeps these words in mind. God does not have to repeat things to Paul. Some people have to have things repeated to, which God is not much for. He does not like repeating himself. But uh, sometimes he does. But Paul doesn't make him repeat himself. He will listen to this and he will go right to Rome. Verse 12. And when it was day, some of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Now, there were more than 40 who had formed this conspiracy. So you got 40 guys there that are after Paul. 40 guys who want to kill Paul and have taken an oath of such that we're not going to eat or drink until we do so, which means we better do it quick. <laughs> they came to the chief priests and elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a great oath that we will eat nothing until we have killed Paul. Well, they just lessened it a little bit right there. Because I said before, they're not going to eat or drink. Now they just say we're not going to eat. Maybe they've softened a little bit on the stand. I'm not, not sure, but it's, it's, Luke is not one for missing details. And he's the one writing this down. Now you, therefore, together with the council, suggest to the commander that he be brought down to you tomorrow, as though you were going to make further inquiries concerning him. But we are ready to kill him before he comes near. All right, so you got the... Um, these guys are under an oath and they come to the Jewish leaders, religious leaders, the people who instruct the people in the law, the people who teach the people about the word of God, these people. And they say, we want to have a, a conspiracy here. We want you to lie in order for us to, to lie in wait so we can murder this guy. Okay. <laughs> All right, we'll do it. And... Uh, they don't apparently have any problem with that. So you got this band of Jews. Nice way to be, be uh, referred to, a band of, of Jews. Verse 16, so when Paul's sister's son heard of their ambush. Now, some folks are better at uh, relations than, than uh, I am. I guess that would make him his nephew. So Paul's nephew. So when Paul's sister's son heard of the ambush, he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. We don't know the age of this young man, but later on, the commander is going to take him by the hand and lead him on. Does that give you an idea how old he is? He sounds young. You don't usually do that to a teenage boy. Right? Usually a teenage boy would be following you, and of course an older one would be certainly more so than, than that. So he would seem to be a young man, very young, very young boy. But he's, all he's really called here is his sister's son and that he is a young man. So Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, Take this young man to the commander, for he has something to tell him. So this little guy, whatever his age, young, overhears this conversation. Maybe he could be seen by them, but they're thinking he's, he's young enough. He doesn't really matter. Or maybe he snuck in being small. He was able to hide behind stuff. Whatever it was, he overheard this thing. And he decides, I'm going to go tell Paul. He doesn't tell his mom. He tells Paul. Now, if you were a little guy, would you tell your mom? Now, this tells you a couple of things about this young man and Paul. First off, if the young boy is going to go to Paul 
First, he must have a relationship with him. He's not a stranger. Which tells us that Paul spent some time with his family despite his heavy travel schedule. When he came back, he spent time with his family. His sister, his nephew, his nephew knew him. His nephew cared enough about Paul that when he heard about this, he goes directly to Paul to tell him. For a young lad to go right to this person, an uncle, and tell him. How many of you have some uncles that you're not close to? I've had some uncles I'm not close to. I've got some uncles I am close to. And uh, I got one uncle that I'm close to. Uh, the rest of them I really don't know. The rest of the family, aunts, uncles, stuff like that. I don't, I don't, I don't know uh, uh, many of them. I have an uncle that, uh, you know, we used to do a lot of things. He used to take us out in his boat when we were kids. And, and um, for a while he was, uh, he was single. And we used to uh, connect when I was down there in Ocean City, traveling for Kelsner's Horse Radish. And we'd connect every once in a while and, and get together and do something. I remember one night we got together. We got a pizza. Got it all planned out. The Eagles were playing on Monday night. I was down there on Mondays all the time. And we uh, gathered at his place and with a pizza. Uh, Mac and Monco's pizza. I went over there and picked it up. Took it on over to his place. And we sat there and watched one of the greatest football games I have ever seen in my life. It was fun. Houston Oilers. At that time, they were in Houston. And uh, Monday Night Football, Buddy Ryan days. And they went into the House of Pain and they made the Houston Oilers hear footsteps. That was Andre Waters and Wes Hopkins in the backfield. Oh, I love those two back there. They were, oh, they were fun. If you caught a ball, caught a ball, you paid for it. <laughs> they were some kind of a pair back there. So I remember that game. I wish to this day I could get that, tape, that thing on DVD or tape something because I know it was good. But he and I, we sat there and we, we watched that together. And we still will get together and connect and, and do things. So there's some uncles that you might be close to and some that though you are related to them, you don't really know, nor do you care about. So this tells us that Paul spent time when he was in the city and connected with these young men. So it gives you a little, little idea about Paul and about the young man. So he doesn't go and talk to his mom. I think that's amazing. The young man is, is old enough to be able to go out here and do this on his own, to walk into the barracks on his own. But um, he's he, not, not, not young enough to have to go to mom first. Or, anyway, he goes in here and tells Paul about it. And once Paul hears it, he trusts that the young man is telling him the story. It's, tr- it's true. Paul has a trust with him. Now, that means a lot to a young man when an adult hears your story and they believe you. Not only does he believe him, he says, you need to take him to the commander. He needs to hear this story. And so uh, <laughs> this, this young lad, you've got to imagine, he's kind of nervous, going to the Roman commander. These people occupy the city. They're not looked on very fondly by the Jews, nor by him. This is what the people around him would be telling him. I've got to go to the Roman commander. Paul, it's all right. It's all right. I wouldn't send it to you. I wouldn't send you to him if he would hurt you. He's a good man. And he has shown himself to be a good man. So he sends him on over there, and the, uh, the poise with which this young man is in the commander is just astounding. Verse 18, so he took him and brought him to the commander and said, Paul the prisoner called me, uh, Paul the prisoner called me to him and asked me to bring the young man to you. He has something to say to you. Then the commander took him by the hand, went aside and asked privately, what is it that you have to tell me? So... He feels like the young man is young enough that in a crowd he might be intimidated. So he takes him by the hand 
and leads him off to a, to a secluded spot where it's just him talking to the commander to make, put him at ease. Again, this tells you he's not super young, but he's not, he's not real old. He's in, the, I'm guessing, somewhere between 7 and 10. That's my guess. I don't think he's five or six. I don't think he, he would quite uh, be able to do that. But seven, eight, nine, ten, somewhere in that neck of the woods is probably where this young man is. So Paul the prisoner called me to him and asked me to bring this young man to you. He has something to say to you. Then the commander took him by the hand, went aside and asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? Now this tells you some more things about the commander and Paul. If a prisoner were to send someone to a commander and say he has something to tell you, most commanders would say, I don't care. But this commander, because of the way Paul has carried himself, has a respect for Paul. And Paul has a respect for the commander. They have a mutual respect for each other. You can tell that with when you uh, interact with somebody. You can tell it pretty quick. And so the commander wants to hear what this young man that Paul sent to him. He wants to hear what he has to say. What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire more fully about him. I, I, when we get to heaven, I've got to find out from Luke, how did you get this story? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I want to find this out. How did you get this story? Because he writes this one down. These are some good words. For a, man, for a little boy who's, who's this young. This is, this is pretty good. The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire more fully about him. But do not yield to them. I think that's a, that right there astounds me. This young man says to him, do not, could you imagine a young man seven to ten years old? Do not yield to them. To the commander. To a commander, do not yield to them. He's not long, he is no longer narrating the story. He is advising. <laughs> I think that's, that is shocking. So, but do not yield to them. For more than 40 of them lie in wait for him, men who have bound themselves by an oath that they will neither eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready waiting for the promise from you. That's a whole lot of details. In a very short period of time, he just covers the important parts, and that's it. Quite a young man. Quite a young man. So the commander let the young man depart and commanded him, Tell no one that you have revealed these things to me. Now, define no one. He's told this by the commander of the Roman army. Or the commander of the Roman army right there in that that area. The commander pulled him aside and he says to him, tell no one what you have done, what you've told me. Seven to ten years old, we're guessing somewhere in that neck of the woods the boy is. When he gets home, what's the first question out of mom's mouth? What you been doing today? What's he going to say? <laughs> he can't say what he did, can he? Tell no one. What you have revealed. Now, this does, he does not say, tell no one for a day or two. Does he? He says, tell no one. What happens if this young man tells the story a week later? Now, the commander is not going to be upset with him. But the Jews might be. 
And if the Jews are willing to kill Paul, what do you think they'd be willing to do with a little boy like this who spoiled their plot? So the commander would know, tell no one about this. Your life could be in danger. And the commander's not going to tell anybody. Luke does spill the beans. But uh, that's, that's sometime later. But anyway, can, can you imagine being that little boy that age? Young man. And you just did something really exciting. You overheard a conversation. You say, Paul, the entire Roman army in that area mobilizes because of what you said. In a little while, we're going to see a parade of soldiers going on down the road. And that little boy knows the reason they're there is because of me. So his friends are seeing all this, this soldier, this whole march. What, what do you think they're doing? If you were a little boy, would you like to say? <laughs> well, don't tell anybody, but... <laughs> so anyway, there's some uh, things that are going on here that really make this to be a very intriguing story. Uh, as far as we can tell, the little boy told no one. Which I think is just really tough for a little boy to have done. I was a little boy. You know, you do something like this, you get excited. And you want to tell people. But... Um, he wasn't supposed to. And for his own protection. Verse 23. And he called for two centurions, saying, Prepare 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen. That's 400 soldiers on foot and 70 on horses. 470 soldiers deployed because of one little boy's story. How much stock does the commander put in what Paul says? Because <laughs> you've got to justify that. This is the, you can't cover this up. The word's going to get back to Rome, to, to people that he's under. Why did you have that deployed? Why did you have all that going on? We had intelligence, sir. Intelligence said that this and this was going to, was going to happen. And so we uh, mobilized to make sure that it would not. How many people are coming against them? Forty. How many people came against them? None. Because they saw 400 on foot and 70 on horses. And you think, what do you think they said? No, I'm willing to miss a few meals for this thing, but I'm not willing to die. <laughs> I'm not willing to die for this thing. This, this is not going to work. And provide mounts to set Paul on and bring him safely to Felix the governor. So as I picture this, you got the horses, Paul in the midst of them, and then the 200, uh, 200 soldiers and 200 spearmen, some in the back, some in the front, marching along. Bring him safely to Felix the governor. So he sends him on his way to bring him to Felix. And he wrote a letter in the following manner. Claudius Lasius, this is the commander. To the most excellent governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. Coming with the troops, I rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. Little off there. We learned that he was a Roman after we rescued him and before we beat him. I will give him a little license there because he could have been in trouble if... Uh, Otherwise, but anyway, it sounds really good that he went in to rescue a Roman out of a mob. 
having learned that he was a Roman. And when I wanted to know the reason they accused him, I brought him before their council. I found out that he was accused concerning questions of their law, but had nothing charged against him deserving of death or chains. And when it was told me that the Jews lay in wait for the man, I sent immediately I sent him immediately to you and also commanded his accusers to state before you the charges against him. Farewell. Then the soldiers, as they were commanded, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. The next day they left the horsemen to go on with him and returned to the barracks. When they came to Caesarea and had delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. And when the governor had read it, he asked what what province he was from. And when he understood that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear you when your accusers have come. And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. He reads the letter. Keep that in mind. The letter is written by a Roman, by a Roman in the army, by a Roman that he knows. And if Paul is impressed by his character in the few days that he has known him, how much more so would Felix be? Now, after five days, Ananias, the high priest, came down with the elders and a certain orator named Tertullus. These gave evidence to the governor against Paul. Now, Tertullus is a Roman lawyer. He is not a Jew. He may have been converted along the process, but he is a Roman lawyer. The Jews despise the Romans until they can use the Romans to do what they want, which is to get rid of Paul. The Jews despise the Romans in Jesus' day until they, could find, they found that the Romans could help them get rid of Jesus and their buddies. As the uh, proverb says, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. <laughs> huh. So Tertullus is a Roman lawyer. He presents the case. And when he was called upon, Tertullus began his accusation saying, seeing that through you we enjoy great peace and prosperity is being brought to this nation by your foresight. We accept it always in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness. He's buttering up, is what he's doing. Now, here's some things about Felix. I dug into this just a little bit, and my head started spinning. How many of you have seen in this day and age, you know, we have uh, political leaders who are involved in sex scandals, who are involved in uh, things with other people's wives and other people's husbands and have girlfriends on the side and all the different things that have gone on that in a number of political leaders in this country and in other countries. We'll get more familiar with people in this country doing it. That's what's going on here. And if, if you want, do some looking up on some of the players that are in here and take a look at some of the uh, scandals that they are involved with. And uh, my, my head was spinning. I thought, How, I'm not going to remember all these details of who was messing with who and what affairs were going on and so forth. So anyway, just know a whole lot is going on. And some people are connected with others in in ways that they're mad at each other because of things that had happened and -and so-and-so tried to steal so-and-so's wife and things like that were going on. But Felix, in particular, besides all the other stuff that's going on, Felix is robbing the temple. He takes money regularly from the temple. They siphon money from the temple to Felix. It's sort of a payoff type of a thing. But he is taking money from the temple. So just know that that's going on. So the Jews, knowing this, they all know that he's taking his money, come before him, and in order to get Paul, 
butter him up. Talk about how great he is. And how they've enjoyed such great peace and prosperity because of his great foresight. Wonderful leadership. <laughs> and that they are thankful for Felix. Uh-huh. Nevertheless, not to be tedious to you any further, I beg you to hear by your courtesy a few words from us. In other words, I could go on and on, but I don't want to tie up all your time. For we have found this man a plague, a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple and we seized him and wanted to judge him according to our law. But the commander, Lysias, came by and with great violence took him out of our hands, commanding his accusers to, to you. By examining him yourself, you may ascertain all these things of which we accuse him. And the Jews also assented, maintaining that these things were so. Very succinct. It's like, kind of like an opening statement that we would do in our courts. It's basically just an opening statement. These are the things that are there. We'll work on other, other uh, proving that or elaborating on that. We're just stating them out there. But um, he says this about him. He said, first off, he's a plague. He infects the people that are around him. Well, he does. He infects them with the gospel. He infects them with the grace of God. He infects them with the, the knowledge of, of God's word. And then the people willingly accept that, that. But some people don't. And Paul's fine with that. But he does come in and do, don't people get infected by the love and the joy and the peace and the faith that Paul preaches? Yeah. But of course, they put it out as a bad thing. They're trying to get the idea that he's coming in and, and messing with hate and anger and dissension. And dissatisfaction with, with Rome or with leadership or things like that. That's what they're trying to convey. That's what they're trying to infer. So that's the first thing. He's a plague. He creates dissension here and throughout the world. Not only here in the uh, Jerusalem area, but he's gone all throughout the world. Over there in Greece, over there in Athens, over there in Asia, over there in Macedonia, Philippi, all the different places. It, we've had riots We've had people getting upset. Wherever he goes, people are getting upset. He creates dissension throughout all the world. Now, now think about this. Think about this. Does Paul create dissension? No. No, he does not. Who creates the dissension? The Jews do. <laughs> Paul never does a thing to create dissension. He comes in there and he preaches the gospel. The dissension doesn't come in until the Jews arrive. When the Jews arrive, they stir up the people against Paul. So the ones who are creating the dissension are the Jews, not Paul. All right. He is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. They're trying to put into here a, a almost like a um, uh, uh, like, almost like a race thing. Trying to, they got this group and they just want to be their own group. It's this sect of the Nazarenes. It's this group out of the Nazarene. They're, 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 they don't mention Jesus, but it's this Jesus group. He comes out of the Nazar Nazarene area. He's a ringleader of this sect. And so they're trying to put him up as a, uh, a person who just gathers people of a certain cause or a certain uh, persuasion. And we're us and they're them. He tried to profane the temple, he says. 
There are three ways, as I've looked this up, three ways to profane the temple. They're in your outline. First is to get up and to speak against the temple. That is one way to profane the temple. To get up and to speak against the temple. Did they not accuse Jesus of profaning the temple? And they said he, when he talked about tearing this building down, and in three days I'll restore it, they saw that as profaning the temple. You spoke against the temple. He was not speaking of the temple. He was speaking of the temple of the body. But that's how they heard it. Second way is to steal from it, which is what Felix is guilty of. The third way, you will see that Jesus pinpointed when he came into the temple and he started turning over all the merchants there and the tables and so forth because they were using the temple to steal from others. They used the temple and the things needed in the temple, the sheep and so forth, to steal from others. And that to Jesus was profaning the temple. You can't just bring your lamb. You've got to buy one of ours. And ours are marked up. But you, you cannot present it unless you have one of ours. You can't bring yours that you got for 30 bucks. You've got to buy one of ours that we have for 150, 200 or whatever, whatever kind of thing it is. Tertullus tried to say they were going to judge Paul according to their law, right? The Jewish law is what he's saying, to their law. They weren't. When the Roman guy came on in, he found them beating Paul. And he saved them from that. They were not trying to judge them according to their law. They were trying to kill him. But the commander had already sent a letter to Felix. Felix already read the letter. And in the letter, he said, we had to go in the mob and pull him out. They were trying to kill him. But the commander interfered with great violence. <laughs> he came in. With, we were just doing our own thing. We were minding our own business. We were carrying this out in a lawful manner. We were just going to have him answer for the crimes that he committed against our law, by our law. And then this guy came in here and he just, by force, messed it all up. Well, he's already got the letter from the commander. So as soon as he brings that up, now, that, now Felix, well, later on, he's going to say, all right, well, we're going to wait until the commander gets here. We're going to hear from him. That's uh, probably a good idea, huh? So we pick up and, and go on here. Let's see. Then Paul, after the governor had nodded to him to speak, answered, inasmuch as I know that you have been for many years, a judge of this nation. I do the more cheerfully answer for myself, because you may ascertain that it is no more than 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship. He says, you're going to figure this out. It's only been 12 days. Six of those days, I've been in jail. About five of those days, I was completing my purification process. One day, I was out, and only for an hour or two. So, in an hour or two, do you think I could have done all those things that they say that I did? Is it possible to have done it in 12 days? But he said, you're going to ascertain that I was in prison for, for much of that and in the uh, process of going through this thing and uh, the purification and so forth. And they neither found me in the temple disputing with anyone nor inciting the crowd, either in the synagogue or in the city. So he's saying, they didn't find me doing it. I wasn't talking to anybody. I wasn't inciting anybody, either in the synagogue or in the city, nor can they prove the things of which they now accuse me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just 
than the unjust. This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. Now, after many years, I came to bring alms and offerings to my nation. This is a statement that he is going to focus on. Felix. What Paul is saying is, this is all, all Felix is going to hear. I, for after all these years, I brought money back with me for my nation. He's going to hear he brought money. And this is the guy who's stealing from the temple. So he hears money's involved. What do you think is on his mind? I need to get some of that money. I need to get some. You brought money back. You've been away for a lot of years. You brought money back. You must have a lot of money. Now, after many years, I come to bring alms and offerings to my nation, in the midst of which some Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with a mob nor with a tumult. They ought to have been here before you to object if they had anything against me. <laughs> but they're not here, he said. Or else let those who are here themselves say if they found any wrongdoing in me while I stood before the council. Unless it is for this one statement, which I cried out standing among them. Concerning the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged by you this day. Now, this doesn't cause any, any uh, stirring up here at this point. I heard uh, it said that Ananias, when he comes to this group, only brings Sadducees. <laughs> he doesn't bring any Pharisees. He only brings Sadducees because the Pharisees sided with Paul. So he only brings Sadducees, the guys who don't believe the resurrection of the dead. So when he states this, they will say, yeah. We're going to get him for that, too. <laughs> so there's a lot. In other words, Paul's defense, there's a lot for one man to do in 12 days. In fact, for a lot of those days, he was in jail. And he says, once you figure out the timeline here, you're going to see I couldn't have done all those things that they say that I did. All the accusations are without proof. After many years, he says, I came to bring them money. Verse 22, but when Felix heard these things, having more accurate knowledge of the way, he adjourned the proceedings and said, when Lysias, the commander, comes down, I will make a decision on your case. So he says, all right, you brought this guy into the matter. We're going to hear what he has to say. Because he doesn't mention it to them, but I have a, he says, I have a letter from him. And he has, his account is a little different from yours. <laughs> so we're going to hear what he has to say. And you're going to have to say these things in front of the commander. They're going to change their story. Because understand, Romans, it, it's, it's not like... Well, we just, have, we just disagree. No. <laughs> when a Roman says this is how it was, that's how it was. So he commanded a centurion to keep Paul and to let him have liberty. and told him not to forbid any of his friends to provide for or visit for him. So he basically puts him in a spot, but it's kind of like an open prison. Anyone can come in. Anyone can go out. They can bring him whatever they want to. And uh, Paul has freedom to talk to whoever he wants to talk to. And after some days, when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. So Paul comes before Felix and just talks not about the accusation. He just talks about the way, about his faith in Christ with his wife, who's a Jew. Now, how many people would have gotten to do this? Paul, because of his Roman citizenship, because of his education, because he's well-respected, has an audience with Felix and he gets to talk to him about these things. Now, as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, any of that have anything to do with this case? Not at all. Felix was afraid and answered, go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. <laughs> so he, was getting, he made him a little uh, antsy with some of these things. Judgment to come. 
<laughs> he didn't like that part about the judgment to come. Meanwhile, he also hoped that money would be given him by Paul that he might release him. Because he realizes he shouldn't be held. But he's hoping for money. He's, he keeps bringing Paul out. Paul, come on over here. Let's talk some more. Tell me about this stuff. And he's hoping because he heard about the money. Paul brought money with him. And he's hoping that Paul will slip him some. Look, if we can let this thing go and I can go off and do my own thing, how much do you want? Hey, but, hey, but and we just bring him some money. And Felix would have been okay. You know, he, Jews would have been mad at him, but he don't care. I got money. So meanwhile, he also hoped that money would be given him by Paul, that he might release him. Therefore, he sent him, sent for him more often and conversed with him. So he has a lot of conversation with a guy who's the governor of that region. But after two years, two years, Paul is held as a prisoner for something that people have judged along the process is neither deserving of death nor chains. And he is a Roman. He is being held because Felix either doesn't want to release him because of what the Jews are going to be saying or because he wants money. Whatever it is, it keeps dragging on and dragging on and dragging on. Now you've got two years. You either escalate this and move it up, in which case you have to do just as the commander did and write a letter defining these charges, which the commander did as best he could. He lowered down what was there. He said, there isn't a, I've found nothing for this man to be in chains or to be put to death. So I'm sending him on over here to you. You can hear all the accusations. You can hear the things. This is your, your role. And uh, two years went by. And it would have gone on longer. But after two years, Festus succeeded Felix. And Felix wanted to do the Jews a favor, left Paul bound. So now here you've got a problem. Paul, a Roman citizen, even though it's not a very tight, very, he's not chained up, he's still not allowed to go anywhere. He still has to stay in the area. Um, he's still a prisoner for two years when no accusations have even been proven. Can you imagine if, if uh, Paul wanted to press this as a Roman citizen? Felix is in trouble. And he knows this. But he kept letting it go on and on, kept hoping for money. And then after a year went by, well, I can't just say that I held him for a year. And, and then there's no accusation that, that they even held any water. And so Felix is feeling pressure to hang on to him, to find something or to release him or to hopefully get paid. Or, and it's just not working out for Felix at all. But he keeps hearing the things about the way. So wherever it is that Felix went, I don't know where Felix went after this. But he got a lot of the gospel in, during that time. So Paul is being accused of the things that Paul is being accused of here. Those who bring the charges. And how many times have we been in places where people have brought unsubstantiated charges against us? You're going to see the very same thing that happens for you happens to Paul here. Those who bring the charges are guilty of the very things they accuse Paul of doing. Many times people who bring unproven accusations against you are the guilty party. It seems that more times that people... Are used to who are used to doing something feel like others are doing it too, and will accuse them of that. We see this a whole lot in this. I could go over. I could go for a long time telling you about the people who accuse others in this country and the things that they're doing. But just I'll just take you back to a, 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 some recent ones. 
How many of y'all know about this war on women that's been going on? And we got this uh, income, uh, uh, what do you call it, income disparity that's there. And they want to make up, you know, the women are not getting paid as much as men. Some of the biggest promoters, I'll give you two of the biggest promoters of it, is the President of the United States and Harry Reid. Now, what's ought to be careful, though, these guys is they got to know that someone's going to check out their office. What are they paying the woman? In the office of the president, when he first took over, the women were paid $13,000 a year less than the men. They've cut that down a little bit, and now today it's $11,000 different. They get paid $11,000 different than the men. Harry Reid is worse. His office is where he's been in it a whole lot longer. His numbers are worse. But they see this. Now, you could say, all right, well, there might be some other factors involved. Maybe the women aren't working as much. Maybe the women aren't as skilled in that office. And those are all valid points, and they might be. But here's the problem. These guys who are pointing the fingers at others, how do they know that the same thing isn't true in the other situations? But they just want to point the fingers. But it's, not, it's okay for us. We can do this. But it's not okay for others. That's wrong. You shouldn't be doing it. This is just a, a, a recent thing that's come up. I got, I've heard so many of them. It's just amazing in how many. Most of these people that are out there accusing others of sexual offenses, then you find out that they are guilty of sexual offenses. They are guilty of these, these things that are going on. I, I just, just published today, uh, Newsbusters had, it, had the article out there today. Michelle Malkin, I think, was the person who wrote the article. Um, talked about Hollywood. How many times have you heard Hollywood talk about the acts against children, sexual acts against children, and they stand up and they speak against it? And she wrote a very scathing article and named quite a few people who are guilty of drugging young boys and dragging them into these parties where they are raped continually. And she named the names of people who did it in Hollywood. You go up to Newsbusters. Uh, I don't know, new dot, new, newsbusters.com. Look for the article by Michelle Malkin. I uh, just, just uh, read it today. But how many times has Hollywood stood up there and defended, well, you know, the children, we've got to defend the children. Here they are, drugging them, I mean, cocaine, strong stuff, so that they aren't coherent and raping them. It's the people who accuse the loudest without any evidence. That's the thing you've got to look at. It's not people who accuse. It's people who accuse without evidence. Remember back when uh, Kenneth Starr was a prosecutor looking into the President Clinton for some of the things that he had done? And President Gilt, uh, was guilty of the things he was looking at. He was very guilty of these things. And Ken Starr was bringing out the evidence. He showed the evidence for it. And what did they all do? They called him guilty of the things that he was putting on the president, even though the president was found to be guilty of these things, had done all these things, they saw him as guilty of, and he was not. <laughs> but he presented evidence. He didn't just say he's done these. He actually presented evidence. What you've got to look for is people who accuse, who are comfortable accusing without evidence, are most often guilty of the thing they accuse others of. People who accuse with evidence, not so. They're careful to present the evidence and to look at the evidence, what's going on. But people who accuse without evidence are generally guilty. 
And so just keep this in mind because you're going to be in a place where you're going to have to judge between what one person says and what another person says. And in the Bible, here in this situation, and how many other places can you think of in the Bible where you see the same thing? When they brought Jesus before. They were accusing him of defaming the Sabbath. And what did they do? They plotted to kill on the Sabbath. And they accused Jesus of defaming the Sabbath because he healed people on the Sabbath. They were guilty of defaming the Sabbath, but continually accused him of doing it. But they can never bring any evidence for it. If, you, if people around you, under you, in a job or whatever, are always accusing other people of things, but never have any evidence, bear in mind, they are probably guilty of whatever they are accusing other people of. And you ought to check into it. Because we see this time and time again in the, in the Bible. That people are guilty of what they point the finger on others for. Doesn't mean you can't ever point the finger at somebody for what they're doing. It means you need to have evidence. The Word of God doesn't say, don't accuse people. It says, on the basis of two or three witnesses, every word will be established. You need to have some witnesses, and it cannot be one. It needs to be multiple. If you don't have more than two or three, if you, I mean, if you can't get the two or three, you only have one witness for it. Can't do it. I had that situation here years ago in the church. Someone brought an accusation. And we had one witness, them. And they said they saw it. They said they, whatever it was. Uh, that happened a couple of times. One person, one witness. Here's the thing. It was real easy for me to say. I said, oh, I didn't have to even say, look, I'm not even telling you I don't believe you. I don't have to get, I don't have to get into that at all. What I'm telling you is I can't act on it. I am not able to act on whatever you get unless we have two or three. If you saw, if there's somebody else who saw the same thing you saw, bring them to me. If not, I dismiss it. That's what you got to do, right? That's what you, that's what you need to do. You got to have that evidence. I'll tell you what, though. More times than not, the people who you accuse, who are get all rambunctious and all rowdy about, you know, pointing the finger and just wait. They're going to be, you're going to be found guilty. Don't act on what they say. Just wait. Here it is with this one. They will constantly blame other people for the things they do themselves. These people profaned the temple. They stole money from the temple to pay off Felix. They were involved in, the, in these things. They profaned the temple and, and uh, you know, trying to using the temple to plot and kill people. They accuse other people of what they're guilty of. And if people come to you and accuse you of things, don't get upset. Don't get right. Just ask for the evidence. Ask for the evidence. And then don't go pointing the finger. Well, then you must be guilty of the same. Don't be doing that. Don't be doing that. They'll, they'll fall. They will fall. But just simply... Where's the evidence? Where's the evidence that's going on? There's got to be some evidence for this thing. There will be. And there might be an explanation for the evidence of where it is. Might be an explanation for it. Might be a reason, like that whole thing with the war on woman thing. And there might be a, a very reasonable explanation for it. I mean, some women don't want to work 40 hours a week. They want to go home and be with the family. And, and, and maybe they're only working 20 or 25 hours. Who knows? You don't, you don't know what it is, but be careful about pointing the finger at people.
before we know what's going on. How many people were pointing the finger at that uh, situation in the ranches, the Bundy situation? Did anybody ever look up that, what's going on? Do you know why they were so upset out there? I did some looking up on the, on the whole thing, the whole Bundy situation. They're upset because a federal agency controls uh, about 80 plus percent of the state that they're in. They control the land of over 80 percent of the state, the federal government. And their idea is, how can we be a state if the federal government controls 80 percent of our land? I think it's something like 83 percent. And this particular organization that, uh, what do they call it, the, the land management? The person who runs that is not elected. They are not elected. They are appointed. And I believe that, they, that if you take all the states, the, what are they, something like the 10th largest, uh, I don't know, 10th, 15th largest country in the world, if you just take the land that they, that they own, and they have at their disposal an army. This one person has at his disposal an army that he can unleash on any U.S. citizen if they don't do with their land what they want. And these guys are getting a little fed up with it. I started looking at all that and said, you know what? I might get fed up with that too. If the state of Utah is supposed to be the state of Utah, then shouldn't the state of Utah control the state? Why is it that 83... Now, I understand that you know, there's a federal park or something like that on there, but we're not talking federal parks. We're at 83%. And apparently that's what these guys are upset about. And there's, there's more to it than that. I, I'm just giving you kind of the top part of it. If it perks your interest, go out there and look it up and, and check out some things that are going on with it. But um, that's, uh, it's, and some of the things that are going on by the Bureau of Land Management is a little bit abusive on the United States citizens. And that's what these guys are upset about. And I don't know that I can say I blame them. But I don't know if... Uh, Again, I haven't done all that. I didn't, it doesn't perk my interest to go all out and <laughs> read all that. But it, it perked my interest enough because uh, this isn't quite uh, what was going on. So those guys aren't quite the bullies that some of the news people are making them out to be. If ever you hear an accusation made against anyone, look for the evidence. Look for the testimonies. Look for what's going on. Get the different sides. So far in this thing with Paul, the Roman leaders that we have dealt with are willing to hear from all the accusers and all the witnesses they can. That's how you get at the truth. And that's what we always need to do. The temptation for us is when we hear one person's side of an argument that we can form an opinion. And it's not good to do that. Don't form an opinion. Listen. Find out. What's going on? I think I've told you this story before a long, long, long time ago. We had an incident that went on with a person who was in one of our children's ministries with the younger kids many, many, many years ago. And um, I heard about an incident that happened in the room with the kids. It made me mad, angry that such a thing would go on. And I calmed myself down. I said, Steve, you've only heard from one person. You need to hear what's going on. And so I called the person who was, who was said to have done something, and I sat them down, and I 
asked her to give me what happened in the classroom. And she came on down. She didn't know that anybody had made any accusation against her at all. And she came on down. Well, listen, this one down. Listen. Oh, I see how it went this way. And I could see how the whole thing got blown out of the proportion and how it got carried away. But if I had gone in and been mad because one person got me all fired up, I would have hurt somebody. And you've got to just calm yourself down. Don't get fired. You, you heard one side of the story. One side of the story. And, uh, you know, the, the, the kid, it was nursery day, but the kids. So you, you can't ask the kids to. <laughs> they, they're not going to help you out. You can, you can ask them, but they're not going to tell you much. And um, so I, we, we, we did that. And it didn't take just sit, sitting them down. And they gave me the story, not knowing that any accusation, any problem had even occurred. And I said, oh, I know exactly where this went wrong. And um, we were all to take care of it. And everybody's feelings were okay. And, and we were good. Watch out for that. Because the temptation, you can get all riled up. You can get all flustered and mad and angry because so-and-so did this. And Now, you'll find that at work, too. People will come to you in the lunchroom and they'll say, this and this went on, and I can't believe that this. Mm-hmm. Well, you don't know that you're getting the whole story. <laughs> you need to go find out. And um, if it's something that you can do something with, if it's not, then maybe you ought to just let it go and just not think about it at all. But these are things that we need to do, need to do. Be on the watch. Because people who make the lattice accusations are usually guilty of the very things that they had done. There was uh, an incident out in California. You can look this up. It just happened in the last month or two. Keith might be able to, he keeps up on some of this thing. Um, one of the leaders, Senator, I think it's a senator, out in California, was, a, was raising all kinds of fuss about a gun running thing that was going on. Find out his campaign was financed by gun running and it just came out and he uh i think has to resign over it or some kind of thing like that but can you imagine that if you were actually doing the thing and the accused of the yes it goes on it goes on do you remember that story you don't remember that one california pretty sure it's a senator um he had to, I, I, I think he had to resign or he was getting ready to leave out or something like that. But anyway, the whole thing had, had come out. I, I didn't, wasn't thinking about that until now. Yeah, we'll have to look that one up. It was a, it was a gun runner. I forgot, I don't even know who, who he was after for the gun runner because, you know, we had gun running under Reagan. We had gun running under Bush. We had gun running under um, uh, President Obama. We've had gun running over just about every one of them out here that has been, been going on. So I'm not sure which one he was uh, pointing the finger at, but anyway, whichever one he was pointing the finger at. Um, he apparently had, to, had a problem with that. Well, Father, we thank you for the help that you give us to be calm when people make accusations against us. Knowing that, Father, we can just pray and ask the truth to come to light that every lie be exposed. And the Father, you just help us do that. Accusers are going to try and get us to react in an angry way. And we just need to follow Paul's example here and just be calm, cool, act with dignity. Because he had the respect of all the people that were around him, the people who mattered. The Jewish leaders, they didn't respect him. But they were not very respectable people. But the people who act in an honorable way, they had Paul's respect. 
And Paul treated them with respect. And the truth would come out. We see that even a commander would mobilize almost 500 soldiers to protect one prisoner because of respect. Father, help us to operate our life in such a way that we command the respect of all the people that are around us. We're not quick to judge, not quick to accuse, not quick to get upset, calm, at peace, walking in love, confident in what you do. We thank you for it. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.